And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Can't wait to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December the 19th, through the 53rd day of the year. Just 12 days remain till this year is over with. Well, <coughs> some interesting things happened on this date. 1606, the ship Susan Constant, good Godspeed and Discovery, leave England carrying settlers who founded uh, the first of the 13 colonies at Jamestown. Among those folks were some of my ancestors. We've been going downhill ever since. The um, Also, this was the date in 1675 of the Great Swamp Fight. Pivotal battle in King Philip's War against the... Gives the English settlers a hard-fought victory. The uh, 1924, the last Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost is sold in London. I'd like to have seen that. Then, 1941, Adolf Hitler appointed himself as head of the Oberkommando des Heeres, the senior leadership of the army. Also on this same date, limpet mines placed by Italian divers damaged HMS Valiant and HMS Queen Elizabeth in Alexandria Harbor. And in 1945, John Amory, British fascist, is executed at the age of 33 by the British government for treason. See, while the British were fighting Nazi Germany, there was, a, I guess you could call them a fifth column movement. Got a lot of strength in Britain. And the, uh, the king that stepped down because he married an American divorcee, uh, Hitler offered him the throne if Nazi Germany conquered England. That would have been interesting. It would have been a puppet. And remember... The uh, the Duke of Windsor and his spouse did go and have a very nice meeting with Hitler. Well, in our last show, we were talking about unfinished business. You know, quite frankly, um, there have been a lot of uh, unsolved murders. And the, the sad thing is, many people just assume they stay unsolved. Um, let's talk about the murder of Mary Fagan, 13-year-old. It's always been a case involving wrongdoing on the part of court officials. It was corrupt and incompetent police work at every level. There was a... You know, racism got involved. Um, Anti-Semitism got involved. All in order to make certain people look good. Leo Frank was convicted of her murder. And then he was broken out of prison to be hung by a lynch mob. And there's a great deal of evidence to indicate that Frank was framed by the police simply because he was Jewish and the killer of killers actually got away. Now, by all accounts, Mayor Fagan was a very lovely young girl. She would have been a beautiful young woman. 
born June 1st, 1899, into what was referred to as a, an established Georgia family of tenant farmers. And as her father died prior to her birth, she was raised primarily by her mother, Frances Fagan. And for her part, Frances moved her daughter several times in an attempt to establish a, a stable home life. In 1899, shortly after the birth of her daughter, she moved back to her hometown of Marietta, Georgia, and in 1907 moved to East Point, Georgia, where she opened a boarding house. Now, I'm unfortunately familiar with some of the legal shenanigans that are played in Georgia by the so-called powers that be. It has to be remembered, the early 20th century was a time of child labor. A lot of jobs that today would never dream of allowing a child to perform were in fact routinely filled with children during that time period as their wages were much less than those of an adult. So it was that by the time she was 10 years old, Mary's mother allowed her to leave school to take part, a part-time job at a textile factory. And while the wages couldn't have been very much, every penny was needed to keep a roof over the family's head. 1912, things appeared to be getting better for the Fagans as Francis Fagan married John William Coleman, who moved his ready-made family to Atlanta. Spring of 1912, Mary got what to her seemed a dream job with the National Pencil Company. Earned 10 cents an hour operating a curling uh, learning machine, which inserted uh, rubber erasers into the metal tips of pencils. Initially scheduled to work 55 hours per week. Uh, I mean, remember, at the time of her death, Georgia was the only state that permitted children as young as 10 to work 11 hours a day in the factories. The attempt to raise the minimum age to 14 was defeated in the state legislature, and that's typical of the Georgia attitude. And while she would earn $5.50 a week if she worked a full shift, 1912, this was considered a decent wage for a child. In fact, in 1912, the average wage was 22 cents an hour for an adult male worker. Children and women were paid about the same as women in 1912, and they earned only 50 to 60 percent of the wages a male could earn in that same job. Now, her job location was on the second floor of the factory in a metal room that was located in a section called the tipping department. Also located directly across the hall from the office of the superintendent of the pencil factory, who was another other than Leo Frank. Now, on April 21st, 1913, she was laid off due to a shortage of brass sheet metal. Without the sheet metal, couldn't run her machine or install the erasers on the tip of the pencils. And since there was little in the way of job security for unskilled laborers in 1913, she was left wondering how to earn a living. And since every penny was important to this young wage earner, she wasn't prepared to uh, forego anything she, that she may have earned at the pencil company. So it was uh, on the afternoon of April 26, 1913, she made a trip to the pencil company to claim her last paycheck, which amounted to the grand total of $1.20. Unfortunately, this was also the same day she met her killer. Now, as near as can be determined, the murder took place either late on the evening of Saturday, April 26, 1913, or early on Sunday morning, April 27th. body was discovered by Newt Lee, the night watchman, at about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning on the 27th. 
And at that hour, of course, the factory was deserted, dark, and cold. And though it was late April in Atlanta, Georgia, it still got quite cold at night, as this was, uh, the, since the heat in the factory, which came from a boiler in the basement, was set low to conserve heating fuel and lower operating costs. Actually, two different stories about how and why Newt Lee found the body of Mary Fagan. First story was that uh, he was night watchman, and it was Lee's duty to make rounds of each area on each floor of the deserted plant. Every hour had to punch a time clock every 30 minutes on each floor. And his only light was a hand-carried lantern. Second story about how and why he found the body was that Lee had to go to the toilet, and the only place he could go was located in the basement. However, based on the earliest account of the case, this was not true as there were bathrooms in the work area for the employees. Depending on who asked was determined which uh, answer he gave. Now, according to all reports, Lee was uh, tired on this particular night, even though he'd been given some unexpected time off in the afternoon by Leo Franks. And having been on the job for some months, he'd become used to wandering around this huge factory building in the dark. His footsteps and his own breathing were the only sounds he ever heard. So he couldn't have been said to be particularly alert as he patrolled the dark, deserted second floor, punched the time clock, and started down the narrow stairs toward the first floor. Well, didn't, finding nothing out of the ordinary on the deserted first floor, he opened the trap door over the scuttle hole that led to the pitch-black basement. Took a firm grip on the metal handle of the gently swinging lantern and slowly descended the narrow ladder to the basement of the silent factory. It was an area where he was especially cautious. It was in this very dark, silent, tomb-like area. The basement was lit after a fashion, as there was a gas jet that was always left burning. Though tonight it was turned down very low. Slowly he turned, his lantern light illuminating each corner of that very dark area. First three corners were empty as always, and when he turned his lantern toward the boiler, he saw something that shouldn't have been there. Thinking his eyes were playing tricks on him, he moved closer to the boiler to better examine what lay there, and then he froze. He was looking at the body of a child. The body that Newt Lee discovered was, in fact, that of Mary Fagan. And according to police reports, the girl was discovered in the rear of the basement near an incinerator. A dress was pulled up around her waist, and a jumper of her petticoat had been torn off and wrapped around her neck. The little face was blackened and scratched, her head was bruised and battered as if she'd been severely beaten. Seven-foot uh, strip of quarter-inch wrapping cord was tied in a loop around her neck and was buried a quarter of an inch uh, deep, showing she'd apparently died from strangulation. Underwear was still around her slim hips, but it was stained with blood and torn open. Skin was covered with ashes and, and dirt from the floor of the basement. Initial impression of the investigating officers is that she and her killer struggled in the basement before she was overpowered. And at 13, she probably wasn't all that strong. There was a service ramp that uh, at the rear of the basement that led to a sliding door that opened into the alley behind the building. And during the investigation, it was determined the lock of the sliding door had been tampered with so that uh, it could be opened from the outside without being unlocked. And even though there was much discussion, that only somebody with access to the plant could have entered the basement, 
Certainly, that was not true. During the investigation, it was discovered there were bloody fingerprints on the door, and prints were found on a metal pipe that had been used as a crowbar. Officers Rogers and W.T. Anderson, along with a reporter who had been sleeping in the back seat of Rogers' car, as well as officers Dobbs and Brown, who were picked up along the way, arrived at the silent pencil factory, still dark in his early morning hours. After a period of pounding on the front door, they were admitted by a very shaken Newt Lee, whose eyes reflected his shock at finding a dead body. Officers demanded to be taken to the dead body, and so it was that guns drawn, the four officers de- followed the terrified night watchman across the main floor of the silent factory to the ladder that led to the equally silent basement. Led him down the ladder to the basement and pointed him with a shaky hand toward the boiler area and said, that's the body. Four officers bent over the small body. She was lying face down across a pile of sawdust. Her head was pointed toward the front and her feet lying diagonally across the pile toward the right rear corner of the basement. Her face was turned toward the, the wall. Gently, the big officers knelt down and turned the tiny body, and only then they saw the extent of her injuries. According to their description, her hair was in shreds, but it was the unmistakable hair of a, a white person. Her hair was matted and stained dark with blood that had flowed from a blow to the back of her head. The, uh, the deceased had been wearing a blue ribbon in her hair, which was now wilted, dirty, and blood-stained. She was wearing a silk lavender dress that was now smeared with blood and grimy from its contact with the floor of the basement. One small white slipper was still dangling from her right foot. As her head fell back, the officers could now see the heavy cord wrapped tightly around her slender neck. A makeshift gag torn from her own dress wrapped her head and filled her mouth. Her underskirt was ripped to shreds. And the support of one of her white stockings was broken while the stocking itself Bagged down almost to the knee of that slim leg. Sergeant Brown examined the body as well as he could in the dim light of the lantern. Sergeant Jobs and Dobbs made uh, what was described as a thorough search of the cell of floors, eyes probing the darkness for the very dim light available to him. A few feet from the body, he found the other shoe lying on the dirty floor. Near an elevator shaft, he found the hat that she'd left home wearing. And then he made what was described as a big discovery. Lying discarded on the dirt floor were two dirty pieces of paper that Sergeant Dodd quickly grabbed with his bare hands. He never did mark the exact location where he found each scrap of paper. And certainly there was not a single thought about fingerprints. And on these scraps, somebody very crudely scrawled the messages. He said he'd, he would love me laid down like the night which did it. But that long, tall black negro did it by himself. The second message said, uh, Matna, that negro uh, hired down here, did this. I went to get water, and he pushed me down this hole. Long, tall black that has it woke. The messages were not written uh, by someone who was especially educated is the way it appeared. The two messages certainly made no sense to the officers. Did the killer write the two messages? Did the victim? Certainly the eyes of each officer present turned to stare at the night watchman. It was W.T. Anderson who broke the ensuing uh, silence. Now remember, this was a time when 
If there was ever a white supremacy time, it was in Atlanta, Georgia, during this time period. He immediately accused the night watchman in a rough voice, grabbed a man by the shoulder. Newt Lee was stunned, shook his head wildly, and croaked out a response. For God, I didn't. Ignoring the denials, only seconds later, Anderson slapped the cuffs on Lee with a resounding click. Newt Lee was arrested for the murder of the currently unknown female victim. Case closed. Well, not really. By five in the morning, the body of the unknown white female had been transferred to the morgue, and Newt Lee was safely behind bars. Another case closed by the brilliant detective work of Atlanta's finest. Of course, they still had to identify the victim and prove that Lee was guilty of her murder, but in 1913 Georgia, calling religion counted more toward proving guilt than such a silly thing as evidence. Newt Lee was black. So in the midst of the four officers, the case was closed. Well, maybe. Officer Rogers stated to the other officers at the crime scene he knew someone who worked at the pencil factory and might be able to identify the dead girl. He was referring to his sister-in-law, Grace Hicks. So Rogers went and got her and took her to the morgue. Grace Hicks took one look at the little girl and blurted out, It's the little girl that worked at the machine next to me. It's Mary Fagan. And at that point, Grace Hicks fainted. Well, while the identification was taking place, other officers went to the crime scene. About 5.30 in the morning, Detective Starnes called up Leo Frank, the superintendent, at his home and told him something had happened at the factory. Starnes said they'd send a car to get him. According to what was said by Rogers and Detective John Black when they arrived at Frank's home, Mrs. Frank opened the front door and almost immediately Leo Frank joined them. Almost dressed except for his collar and his tie. He also appeared, at least to them, to be extremely nervous, constantly rubbing his hands, uh, which they found suspicious. Now, it was in hindsight that the detectives decided this hand rubbing was an evidence of guilt. Three men got into Roger's car and left the Frank home. Rogers asked Frank if he knew a girl named Mary Fagan, and he responded he'd look at the factory payroll and see if that name was listed as an employee. According to the pen, uh, arriving at the pencil factory, Leo Frank went directly to his office, pulled out an employee ledger, and confirmed Mary Fagan was, in fact, ha uh, or had been employed there at one point. And at this point, he seemed to remember Mary and said, Did you come in to get her pay? The stenographer left at noon, and the, the office, boy, office boy left a few minutes later, and he thought Mary came in about 12.15. He also mentioned somebody had been fired, J.M. Gant. And also come in Saturday morning to pick up a pair of shoes he'd left behind. He thought Mary knew him, and police immediately began to look for J.M. Gant. Certainly without the, throughout his time with the police, Leo Frank acted nervous and nervously talked. And this was later viewed as a sign of guilt, or at least a guilty conscience. In fact, it envied Darley, the general foreman of the plant, who, who uh, Franks had called to come in, said that Franks was actually trembling. The story of Mary's last day was pieced together from various witnesses. Memorial Day, a holiday, so it was the first holiday Mary had been able to enjoy, though now that she's laid off, everybody be a, every day would be a holiday until she found another job. She planned to go get her pay from the factory and spend the rest of the day watching the Confederate veterans parade down Peachtree Street. They still had uh, um, parades like that when I was a teen. 
Quite interesting, as a matter of fact. According to her mother, Mary had a lunch of cabbages and biscuit before leaving for the factory. And she was said to have boarded a streetcar about noon. Now, at this point, it should be commented that Mary's attire was certainly rather dressy for somebody who was going to a factory and watch a parade. It was perhaps what those in the South used to call Sunday go-to-meeting attire. Lavender dress, white hose, a bow in her hair, this wasn't casual dress by any means. So the question became, was she planning on meeting a paramour? Certainly the police never remotely addressed anything like this. And in 1913, even at the age of 13, young ladies did have paramours, sometimes quite a bit older. Once on the streetcar, Mary met a neighbor boy, George Epps. They sat together on the car, and before she left the car, she promised to meet her friend at 1 p.m. and go watch the parade with him. Mary entered 4th Street. Mary left the streetcar about a block from the factory building at this point. And this was the last time anybody remembered actually seeing Mary Fagan. Late that evening, George Epps went to Mary's house to find out why she hadn't met him at the parade. Found her mother was very worried because Mary had not come home. J.W. Coleman, her stepfather, went into town to check all the places Mary might have gone, but to no avail. Nobody had seen the young girl. It wasn't until early Sunday morning, April 27th, that Helen Ferguson, a neighbor, came to tell Francis Fagan Mary was dead. So much for identification of the dead to the next of kin by the police. Mr. Coleman immediately rushed downtown to the Bloomfield Mortuary where he viewed the body, confirming Mary Fagan was indeed dead. When word spread of Mary's murder, the largest crowds in Atlanta history to that time came to view the body. The official count was over 20,000. Hundreds more came to view the body at the, at the funeral in Marietta. Now, prior to the funeral, physicians made an examination of parts of Mary's body, although their results were kept secret till the trial. On Tuesday, April 29th, Mary Fagan was laid to rest in the old family cemetery in Marietta. However, in a shocking turn of events, on May 7th, the body was exhumed at the order of the state solicitor, and detailed examination was made of the stomach and other vital organs by H.F. Harris, a physician from the State Board of Health. Again, the findings of this unusual examination were kept secret till the trial, which took place almost three months later. And though police were sure they got their man with the arrest of Newt Lee, they were forced to examine some of the hundreds of tips that flooded their headquarters. In addition to the so-called murder notes, Lee had been able to tell the officers it was a white girl. He had said he'd not exempt that it was a white girl when he said um, he hadn't examined the body. And according to officers, Mary was so grimy it was impossible to tell what color she was from any distance. Lee claimed he knew she was white based on her hair. And it should also be mentioned in their initial investigation of the crime scene that much of the evidence from there had been compromised by the first officers on the scene. Since they knew who the killer was, they didn't have to worry about preserving anything, was their attitude. In the darkness of the basement, police had trampled a trail in the dirt that led from the elevator shaft along which police believed the killer drugged the body. Footprints that were found around the body were never identified, and the lady fingerprints on a sliding door were never properly investigated. The author or authors of what the press was calling the murder notes were never ascertained. Then there were also questions that arose on how police found blood spots on the second floor of the factory around the machine that Mary Fagan worked on. However, even if this was true, that would have 
relevance would this blood be when she'd been laid off and was no longer operating the machine? What would have been her reason to be around the machine at this point, especially dressed in what were probably her best clothes? Then it was stated that blood spots had been found on the first floor near the elevator shaft. This supported a theory she'd been murdered and taken to the basement where her body was dumped. Witness came forward who said that he'd seen Mary Fagan at 12.10 p.m. walking along Forsyth Street with a former streetcar conductor named uh, Arthur Mullinex. The El Centel employee of the C.J. Kemper Grocery told police he knew Mary had known her for years and no doubt that it was her with Mullinex. So Mullinex was arrested and thrown in jail on suspicion of murder. How many killers did this young girl have? Then police arrested J.M. Gant on suspicion. He'd worked at the factory, knew Mary, and didn't have a solid alibi. His sister, Ms. C.F. Terrell, said he had stayed at her house Friday night, but then she gave conflicting statements about his movements after that. So now police had arrested three people in regard to Mary's murder. Monday, April 28th, the pencil factory hired the local Pinkerton detectives to help the police solve the crime. That same morning, the coroner, Paul Donahue, uh, convened the coroner's jury in the middle room of the pencil factory for the purpose of viewing the possible murder scene. The jury was adjourned immediately after they saw the room. On May 1st, at the coroner's inquest, Mullinax's fiancée, Pearl Robinson, came forward and stated it was her that had been walking with Mullinax on Forsyth Street at 1210 on that particular day. Faced with this conflicting evidence, E.L. Sintel retracted his statement. Mullinax was freed. Gant was freed as well, as it turned out the evidence against him wasn't solid. On Tuesday, April 29th, Leo Frank, the superintendent of the National Pencil Factory, was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Mary Fagan. Little did he know when that cell door closed behind him, he had never see freedom again. In the Georgia legal system, and that's still true today, accusation equals guilt. The trial was a mere formality. Evidence against him couldn't be said to be conclusive. Certainly wasn't sufficient for an arrest in any other jurisdiction in this country, but this was Georgia, a place where race and position mattered a great deal. The police felt they had a solid case against this man. By his own admission, Frank was the last man known to have seen Mary Fagan alive. He appeared nervous when Newt Lee came to the factory early in the afternoon. Called Newt Lee over the telephone during the evening, something he had never done before. He was nervous when Gant came to the factory on Saturday afternoon. And he was nervous when officers took him to the factory Sunday morning. Now, frankly, in a modern court, any first-year legal aid attorney could have destroyed the case, but this was Georgia. And behind the scenes, it was clear they'd make a lot of people happy if Franks was convicted. After all, the major evidence against him is he was Jewish. If they couldn't pin a case on Newt Lee, a black man, then who better than Frank? And even though they arrested Leo Frank, Atlanta police didn't want to give up on their chief suspect, Newt Lee. In an effort to find additional evidence, police conducted a detailed search of Lee's home. In a bun barrel in the back of his cabin, investigators discovered a shirt with dark stains on it. Investigators immediately declared it to be the blood, to be blood, and Mary Fagan's blood at that. Blood was smeared high up on the armpits, and the shirt appeared to have never been worn. Well, the police were initially jubilant over the discovery, and they began to believe the shirt may have been planted to incriminate Lee. The main problem with this evidence is that 
Police couldn't explain why the shirt appeared not to have been worn after the blood was smeared on it. For his part, Luke Lee denied ever having seen that shirt before, claiming the one he had on he had worn for a week. So police took the easy way out and decided Franks had arranged the shirt to be planted to incriminate Lee. Appears there was no single piece of evidence that pointed to blame to Frank, but a lot of small things. According to Steve Oney in his book, And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Lynching of Leo Frank, the evidence against Leo Frank consisted of the following hard-fought evidence. Number one, charges were dropped against Mullinax and Gant. So they had to have somebody to charge. Two, the rumors that Mary Fagan had been seen later in 1215 on the street were discounted, which made Frank the last person to admit to seeing Mary alive. Three, Frank called in the Pinkertons. And finally, they weren't so sure anymore about Newt Lee's role in the matter, and they had to have somebody. Police were willing to shift things around to make their case. So now they decided... Newt Lee was actually Frank's accomplice in the murder. little thing like motive never came up in discussion. So authorities arranged a face-to-face meeting between Newt Lee and the real Frank in the hopes that one or the other would make an incriminating statement. Nothing conclusive came from this meeting, but the police viewed it as a further factor implicating Frank as the murderer. During the quarter's inquiry, the newspaper boy, George Epps, said that Mary had mentioned to him that Frank had once winked at her and looked suspicious. There was no evidence submitted supporting these events and no explanation of what Mary originally meant when she called him suspicious. I mean, this was the blatantest of hearsay. And again, any first-year legal aid attorney could have torn it apart. As a matter of law, this statement by Epps was hearsay at its finest and certainly under the rules of evidence. It wasn't even admissible at trial. But in a Georgia courtroom, hearsay is how a lot of cases are decided. They also don't mind forgery, because what's a little bit of forgery among friends? Make matter worse for Frank, several of the women who worked in the pencil factory said that Frank and had uh, for a letter with them, and one claimed she had been propositioned. Of course, none of these witnesses had anything to back up their claims, not even being able to furnish dates of when these events were supposed to have happened. Detectives even had to admit they had so few so far obtained no conclusive evidence or even any clues in the baffling mystery. Based on this nothing of a case, the coroner ordered that Newt Lee and Leo Frank were to be detained. In May, William Burns of the Burns Detective Agency came to Atlanta to offer assistance to solve the case. However, that same month, his firm withdrew from the case due to the petty politics that continually interfered with the investigation. The agency quickly became uncomfortable with the many societal implications in the case, one of the most important being that since Frank was a rich Jew, that meant he could buy off the police and bring in private investigators to get him off. Now, if you think that sounds uncommonly racist, you never lived in the state of Georgia. It's also said to be intense animosity between the police and the private detectives hired by the pencil factory that even resulted in the police following the private detectives to ensure they didn't plant evidence that would clear Frank. Police left no stone unturned in their efforts to build a case against Frank. 
Even had Frank strip and allow his body to be examined for wounds of any sort. They didn't find any. Or did they find any blood on the suit that Frank wore on that day and none on any clothing at his home? But in spite of all this, the officers were positive Frank was the culprit and left no stone unturned to make their case. Officers questioned Jim Conley, the factory's janitor, even though he admitted he lied on several occasions based on what he had to say after some coaching, they used his statements to build the case against Leo Frank. There's also indications that the third degree had been used on several witnesses in order to get them to make the statements the police wanted. Now, the term third degree is a euphemism for torture. In other words, they inflicted pain, physical or mental, to extract confessions or statements. 1931, the Workersham Commission found that the use of the third degree was widespread in the U.S., and it was certainly present in the Leo Frank case. And as we'll see, the third degree was used on several potential witnesses to build the case that uh, was brought before the court about Leo Frank. One important facet of the prosecution's case was a timeline it works so hard to establish. However, even the most basic overviews showed some problems with that timeline. Based on the stomach contents, the prosecution argued that Mary Fagan had died between 12 and 12.15 in the evening. One uh, of the prosecution's main witnesses, Montine Stover, testified she had gone to Frank's offices to get her a paycheck. She was positive she waited there from 12.05 to 12.10 and didn't see Frank in his office. According to the prosecution, Frank was busy killing Mary Fagan at the time, uh, which is why he wasn't in his office. Now, of course, Miss Stover wouldn't ask to prove she'd been in Frank's office to show anything to corroborate how long she was in the office or even if she was ever in the office. Testimony of George Epps was used to establish what time Mary was said to have gotten off the trolley. He was adamant she'd left the trolley at 12.07 p.m. exactly. However, both the motorman... W. Matthews and the conductor, W.T. Hollis, testified the Fagan girl got off the trolley at 12.10. And they both testified George Epps had not been on the trolley that day. However, the prosecution refused to question Epps' testimony as they needed it for the timeline. Now, in case you're wondering, did the young man have a, uh, a watch, perhaps? Wristwatches were a rarity in 1913, especially among the young. Nobody inquired about how George Epps was so sure it was actually 12.07 exactly when she got off the trolley. According to testimony offered at trial, it takes three to four minutes from the trolley stop to walk to the factory. If the motorman and the conductor were correct regarding the time that Mary left the trolley, the earliest she could have arrived at the factory, unless she ran from the trolley stop to the factory, which is never inquired into, was approximately 12.15. By this point in time, Montine Stover, by her own testimony, had left Frank's office, which makes her testimony irrelevant. It also shows that for the time of death to be accurate, Mary had to be killed the moment she stepped into the factory, which doesn't fit with the prosecution's own theory. However, since the authorities were adamant that he killed Mary, adjustments to stories and statements were made. Part of the problem was that the members of the coroner's jury, the grand jury, and the trial jury had been bombarded by press reports and police statements that Frank was guilty, had to be guilty, nobody else was guilty, so his chances of a fair trial were almost nil. Trial was almost a formality since testimony cleared Frank was ignored time and time again. Lemmy Quinn, the foreman of the 
mental room also testified he spoke to Frank at his office at 1220. Frank had mentioned Quinn's visit when he was first interviewed by police on April 27th. The coroner's inquest, Frank testified Quinn had arrived less than 10 minutes after Fagan left his office. At trial, Frank testified that it was less than five minutes after Fagan left his office that Quinn arrived. Defense witnesses testified it would have taken at least 30 minutes to murder Fagan, take the body to the basement, return to the office, write the so-called murder notes. But Frank's time was fully accounted for between 11.30 and 1.30 p.m. The crucial time was between noon and 12.15 p.m., and if he met Quinn at 12.20 and Quinn said that Frank was sitting at his desk working when he arrived, Frank was certainly not writing murder notes and showed no signs of having just committed a murder. These witnesses are telling the truth. Leo Frank couldn't possibly have killed Mary Fagan. Prosecution dealt with this problem with their timeline of witnesses that tended to clear Frank by simply ignoring him. In the case of Quinn, the prosecutor accused Quinn of lying, naturally without submitting any proof supporting this charge, and then reminded the jury that Frank had mentioned Quinn in his statement to the police, so according to the prosecution, it's proved that Quinn's testimony had to be fraudulent. Ray certainly played a part in this trial, and the prosecution did nothing to stop it. Prosecution focused a portion of their case on what they call Frank's sexual behavior, which was based entirely on the unsupported testimony of Jim Conley, the plant janitor, who admitted he had lied several times. Much was also made in the press about the sexual desires of Jews for white Gentile women. The, uh, according to Lindemann and his work, and that's Albert Lindemann who wrote the book The, the Jew Accused, the Anti-Semitic Affairs. Um, according to Lindemann, as I said, there was a developing stereotype of wanton young Jewish males who hungered for fair-haired Gentile women. Well, this was said to be a familiar stereotype in Europe. This unreasoned fear of this sexuality threatening white Gentile females reached Atlanta in the 1890s with the arrival of a wave of Eastern European Jews. This alleged Jewish desire for white Gentile women, tacitly supported by the prosecution's case, inflamed those who decided Frank had to be guilty and directly led to the truly disgraceful actions that happened later. He had absolutely no possibility of a fair trial. As for the racial prejudice part, actually both legal teams, defense, as well as prosecution made use of racial stereotypes throughout the trial. The defense, who believed Conley was either the killer or helped kill Mary, pictured Conley as a new type of African-American, anarchic, degraded, and dangerous. The prosecutor, on the other hand, pictured Conley as a familiar type of uh, uh, African-American, like a minstrel player or a plantation worker, Maintained that being a, a African-American Conley wasn't intelligent enough to concoct a complicated story, so what he said had to be the truth. As mentioned earlier, the prosecution based the bulk of its case on the testimony of Conley, the factory janitor. Um, according to uh, Albert Lindemann, who's written a number of books about the Fagan case, the best evidence now available in the case, the real murderer was probably Jim Conley. Theorized that she left Frank's office, met Conley, whose testimony uh, showed uh, he was in the building, and tried to get the girl to give him her pay envelope. When she refused, it's believed he killed her and took the money. I mean, in 1913, $1.20 was nothing to sneeze at. Evidence was found after the trial showing it was probably Conley, uh, as I said, but 
having been publicly committed to the guilt of Frank and under tremendous pressure by the demands of the public that the pervert be hung, the evidence implicating Conley was just simply ignored. Now, Conley was first investigated and arrested when a witness, E.L. Holloway, the plant timekeeper, reported that Conley had been seen washing red stains from a blue work shirt. Conley claimed it was rust stains he was washing out of his shirt since he had been called to testify at the coroner's inquest and didn't want to go in front of the uh, coroner's jury with a dirty shirt. Police saw no reason not to believe him, but he was locked up anyway. In his initial statement to police, Conley maintained he hadn't been anywhere near the factory on the day of the murder. He also told Detective Scott he couldn't, have, he couldn't write a word when Scott asked him to write a few sentences for comparison with the murder notes. Scott believed him when Conley said he couldn't write, so police just let him sit in jail. Only after investigators began to get negative reports about Conley from other workers, they turned their attention to him again. It seemed like he had a long criminal record and wasn't very well liked at the factory. Also had a reputation for borrowing money and not paying it back. Of course, even this wasn't enough to get investigators to consider him a suspect, so Scott found out from a clerk at the factory Conrad could both read and write. Now the police knew that his original statement wasn't true. They gave him their full attention, even went so far as to give him the third degree. Finally, on Friday, May 23rd, Conley admitted he knew how to write and gave officers a sample. Quick comparison made it clear Conley had very likely written the murder notes the police had found at the crime scene. However, it wasn't until the next day that Conley changed his story. About 10 o'clock in the morning, that Saturday morning, when Conley sent for Detective Black, Black arrived at Conley's cell. Conley said he'd lied in his first statement to the police, but now he's going to tell them the whole truth, nothing but the truth. He said he'd written the so-called murder notes, but it was because Leo Frank had ordered him to do so. Conley said Frank had promised if he wrote the notes, Frank would send him to his mother and she'd give Conley a job. But Conley was elated. He knew Conley had just put the rope around Frank's neck and he, would, Detective Black, would get the credit. First thing he did was test Conley on his spelling, discovered that Conley's spelling and the various words in the murder notes was consistent with the original notes. I mean, there's very little doubt that Conley did, in fact, write the two murder notes. The main problem from the point of view of the police was that Conley swore that Frank asked him to write the notes on Friday, which suggested premeditation. They also suggested that Frank, Conley's boss at the factory, confessed to Conley about killing the girl, which the police did not believe. And though the police knew Conley was still lying, if he had allowed him to coach him, the statement would seal the case against Frank. And it was his second affidavit to the police that helped solidify the case against Frank by at least confirming beyond a shadow of a doubt who'd written the murder notes. In spite of that, there were still some uh, gaps in Conley's story. Well, deciding to get the full story out of Conley, the Police subjected him to the third degree once again, though the defense claimed the police actually took Conley to school to tell him what to say in his third affidavit. Certainly his third affidavit uh, was an attempt at making a formal statement, in spite of some remaining issues that finally put the noose around Frank's neck. In his third statement, Conley admitted he'd had lied about meeting Frank on Friday. Premeditation angle was just simply too hard to believe. I said he met Frank on the street on Saturday. said Frank told him to follow him to the plant and hide in the wardrobe so that the two women who were going to visit Frank wouldn't see him. Further claimed that Frank dictated the notes for him to write. Went on to claim that after he wrote the notes, he left the plant and went to a movie. Police were concerned that Conley didn't admit he knew a crime had taken place before he wrote the notes, which meant that Frank had dictated the notes arbitrarily. 
which is a little bizarre. Pencil Company officials responded they believed that Conley was at the plant to rob one or more employees, but police disputed this and never followed up on it. Fagan's purse was never found, but again, police refused to follow up with a possibility that Conley robbed the girl and took the purse since he was an important witness against Frank, who everybody knew was the killer. So anything that would detract from that had to be ignored. Police attempted to arrange a face-to-face meeting between Frank and Conley, but Frank wanted his attorney present, who was out of town at the time. As a result, the meeting didn't take place. The Atlanta Constitution quoted police as saying Frank's refusal to meet without his attorney present proved he was guilty. Determined to finalize the case against Frank once and for all, on May 29th, police met with Conley for over four hours. During this meeting, Conley agreed to prepare a new affidavit. In his third affidavit, Conley admitted he'd previously lied. He now said Frank told him he'd picked up a girl back there and let her fall and her head hit against something. Conley now said he and Frank took the body to the basement through the elevator and returned to Frank's office where Frank dictated the murder notes. According to this third affidavit, what was the, actually his fourth statement, the two went back to Frank's office where Conley hid in the wardrobe. He also said Frank had given him $200 but took it back, saying, let me have that and I'll make it all right with you Monday if I live and nothing happens. At uh, the trial, Conley changed his story again and said that Frank withheld the 200 to Conley had burned the body in the basement furnace. The Georgian hired William Manning Smith to represent Conley for the sum of $40, which in 1913 was serious money. Smith believed Conley had told the truth in his fourth statement, but he was concerned Conley was giving long jailhouse interviews to the media. Had he moved to another wing of the jail and nobody was able to get to him except officers. On February 14, 1914, Conley was sentenced to a year in jail for being accomplice after the fact to the murder of Mary Fagan. Frankly, the, the verdict from the trial was almost a foregone conclusion. The Atlanta Constitution had broken the story. The Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Georgian were competing to see which paper could publish the most lurid details about the murder. Newspaper coverage combined real evidence leaked from police with unsubstantiated rumors and blatant speculation. public just ate it up. By the time of the trial, there was no one qualified to sit on the jury who hadn't been made aware of every single aspect of the case. Naturally, the papers had been daily tying Frank in the press to the point that the public uh, called him that pervert. I mean, how could he get a fair trial? May 23, 1913, a grand jury was convened to hear evidence for an indictment against Leo Frank for the murder of Mary Fagan. Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor, presented only enough evidence to get the indictment, assuring the jury he had additional evidence that would be presented at trial. On May 24, the grand jury returned an indictment. Surprise, surprise. Frank's legal team demanded the grand jury indict Jim Conley as they were sure he was the actual killer. Grand jury foreman on his own authority convened the jury on July 21st, but Hugh Dorsey convinced the jury not to indict Conley. After all, Conley was the state star witness. They couldn't have him indicted. Trial began July 28th in the Fulton County Superior Court. Leonard Rowan was the judge. Prosecution team was a little unusual. Hugh Dorsey was the prosecutor, assisted by William Smith, Jim Conley's attorney. Rio Frank was defended by a team of eight attorneys. In addition to the hundreds of spectators inside the courtroom, there were thousands gathered outside the building. This tremendous crowd and all the media pressure for a conviction was one of the factors brought out in later appeals as 
factors in the alleged intimidation of the witnesses and of the jury. You know, the prosecution presented witnesses who testified as to the, the hair and blood stains found on the lathe in the metal room to support their theory the murder took place on the second floor of the factory near Frank's office. You know, from the records, there seemed to have been an assumption that the hair and blood found on the lathe belonged to Mary Fagan, but no evidence was actually presented that it was hers. And there was as much argument as to where the murder took place in spite of the testimony of the blood stains. Blood stains. Certainly the cord tied around her neck could be found throughout the factory. Prosecution believed that the scene of the basement supported Conley's story. Remember, the assistant prosecutor was Conley's own attorney, a clear conflict of interest that the court ignored, that the body was carried down in the elevator. And the implication, though not the truth, was that Frank had the only key to the elevator. However, the drag marks, which police had not thoroughly investigated, supported the idea the body was taken down the ladder and drug across the floor. Then there was the purse, which still hadn't been found. Prior to the trial, in his various statements, Conley denied knowing anything about the purse. However, at trial, and after careful police coaching, he said he had seen Frank put the purse in his office safe. Of course, when the safe was opened on Monday after the murder, no sign of the missing purse. And now the sexual aspects of the case came to the forefront. Prosecution alleged that Frank, with Conley's assistant, regularly met with women in his office for sexual relations. Now to change their previous statements, Conley now said he saw Fagan go upstairs and heard a scream shortly after that. He said he dozed off, and when he awoke, Frank called him upstairs and showed him Fagan's body. He said Frank admitted he'd hurt Mary, and then he reverted to his previous statements without taking the bodies to the basement. The defense cross-examined Conley for 16 hours, but they couldn't break his story. I mean, as well coached as he was, he was prepared for almost any question they could ask. Defense didn't move to have this testimony stricken in its entirety concerning the alleged rendezvous. Judge Roan ruled that had the injection been made early, he might have agreed, but since the testimony had already been made, it couldn't be unheard. Well, defense also called a number of factory girls who testified they'd never seen Frank flirting with or touching the girls, and they considered him to be a person of good character. In rebuttal, Dorsey called a steady stream of former factory workers and asked the questions, do you know of Mr. Frank's character for lasciviousness? Answers are usually negative, but with the evidence that was presented, the court accepted it. There were numerous charges and countercharges from the defense and the prosecution regarding witness tampering and intimidation and bribery. The defense went so far as to request a mistrial due to their belief the jury had been intimidated by the mass crowd surrounding the courthouse, but that was denied. However, fearing the safety of Frank and his lawyers in case he is found not guilty, the judge and the defense team agreed that neither Frank nor his attorney would be present when the verdict was read. August 25, 1913, after less than four hours of deliberation, the jury reached what was said to be a unanimous guilty verdict. He did it. Also interesting to note that even though jury deliberation is supposed to be secret, that very morning the Atlanta Constitution reported deliberations took less than two hours. First ballot showed one jury was undecided, but within two hours, the second ballot was unanimous for guilty. So it would seem the news media had a direct pipeline to the jury room. Well, August 26, 1913, the day after the guilty verdict was read, the judge brought counsel under his private statement, sentenced Leo Frank to death by hanging, setting the date for October 10th. 
defense team and immediately issued a public protest claiming that public opinion and news reports influenced the jury against Frank. Well, at that time under Georgia law, appeals of death uh, penalty cases had to be based on errors of law, not a reevaluation of the evidence. The appeals process had to begin with a reconsideration by the trial judge. Defense presented a written appeal alleging 115 procedural issues. But on October 31, uh, 1913, Judge Rohn uh, denied the motion, stating that while he wasn't thoroughly convinced that Frank was guilty or innocent, he didn't have to be convinced. The jury did have to be convinced, and it was clear they were. The next step in the appeals process was the Georgia Supreme Court. In addition to raising the previous arguments, the defense also focused on Judge Rohn's stated reservations. Well, in spite of continually losing, the defense didn't give up. Based on their discoveries, they filed an extraordinary motion before the state Supreme Court. This resulted in a stay of execution and a hearing on this extraordinary motion opened up April 23, 1914. And the defense had amassed a mountain of new evidence to call the verdict into question. A number of witnesses wrote affidavits that repudiated their testimony. State biologists ran tests on the hairs found on the lathe and stated in a newspaper interview the hairs didn't match those of Mary Fagan. This newly amassed evidence was leaked to the media, and as a result, the state began to seek repudiations of the, of, of the repudiations. An analysis of murder notes showed they'd been probably been written in the basement and not in Frank's office, as stated by Conley in his testimony. And there was one other issue regarding the police investigation that was revisited at this point in the appeals process. During the initial investigation, undisturbed human excrement had been found in the bottom of the elevator shaft. When questioned, Conley admitted he'd left it there before the murder. On Monday after the, the murder, when authorities used the elevator, it crossed the excrement. This meant that if Frank and Conley had used the elevator on Saturday to transport the body as claimed by Conley, it would have crushed the excrement as well. But when the police found it after the murder, it was undiscovered. I mean, excuse me, un, uh, undisturbed. Well... We're about to run out of time, but let me give you exactly what happened. The uh, Based upon all the clear problems with the trial, Governor Slatton commuted Frank's death sentence to life imprisonment. And in response, Atlanta Mayor Jimmy Woodward committed to the press that the larger part of the population believed Frank is guilty at the... At the uh, Commutation was a mistake. In fact, the public was outraged. A mob threatened to attack the governor at his home. Well, the uh, June 24, 1915 commutation of his sentence provoked Tom Watson to advocate for Frank's lynching. Well, in response... A group of 28 prominent men organized themselves in what was called the Knights of Mary Fagan. And these 28 possessed various skills from an electrician to a lay preacher. And they planned to break Frank out of prison and lynch him. Well, guess what? They did that. They went to the prison on August 18th in eight cars carrying the lynch mob. Arrived there about 10 p.m. member of the mob that was an electrician cut the phone wires. Other members... Drained the gasoline from the prison's automobiles, handcuffed the warden, and took Frank from his cell in his nightshirt and drove away. 
Well, it was almost a seven-hour trip back to Milledgeville, which was carried out on the back roads. Top speed in cars of those days was about 20 miles an hour. Lookouts were stationed at each small town they had to pass through to make sure there was no interference. And let's I've stopped at a place called Fray's Gin, about two miles east of Marietta. The site had already been prepared with a rope and a table furnished by former sheriff William Frey. Frank was handcuffed, his legs tied at the ankles, and he was hung from a branch of a tree about 7 o'clock in the morning. Now, the lynch was not a great secret because there were a number of prominent people who were present, according to the Atlanta Journal. According to the story, a crowd of men, women, and children arrived on foot, in cars, and on horseback. Souvenir hunters even cut away pieces of Frank's nightshirt. According to the New York Times story, Robert Howell, a relative of Clark Howell, letter to the Atlanta Constitution, tried to whip up the mob to cut the body into pieces, burn it, and bury the remains. Judge Newt Morris tried to restore order and asked for a vote on whether the body should be returned to the parent intact. So there was even a duly elected judge present at the lynching. What we've got with this particular piece of unfinished business is the fact that killers get away with murder, and they get away with it quite often, especially if they've got the media on their side. Well, the biggest evidence against Leo Frank was the fact, as I said, he was Jewish. And in Georgia of 1913, and even today, race and ethnicity play a major role in deciding guilt and innocence. If you're one of the in crowd, you can commit murder in the state of Georgia, and it's fine. If you're not, you got a hard road to hoe. Well, until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.